Well, good morning. It is good to be with you this morning. Looking forward to our time together and to welcome uh, those who are watching, streaming online, a national audience this morning. At least I think my daughter is watching from Washington, D.C. <laughs> I couldn't confirm that until after the service, though, to be sure. I am grateful to Pastor Drew for extending the invitation to share with you and looking forward to our time together. Let me invite you to take your Bibles or your smartphone or whatever you use to open the Scriptures and to turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 14. Most of us have used the word good uh, in reference to people. We've made statements such as, those are good people, uh, he's a good guy, she's a good woman. And when we say that, we're speaking of their faithfulness or their uh, dependability or their trustworthiness, their honesty, uh, their work ethic in some way. And when, when we use the word good to describe people, we're using it as an adjective. Now, some use improper English and uh, try to use the word good as an adverb, such as, I did good on my English exam. If they wrote like they spoke, they didn't do as well as they thought they did. <laughs> but the word good can also be used as a noun, as in that charity organization does a lot of good. In Acts chapter 10, verse 38, we read that Jesus went about doing good. It wasn't how he was doing it, it was what he was doing. When we look in the book of Chronicles, we see the history of, of Judah primarily in the divided kingdom, and Judah had a number of good kings. They weren't all good, but there were some that did fit that category. And we're going to consider a good king this morning in 2 Chronicles chapter 14. So it set the stage some 20 plus years prior to this time, the nation of Israel had split. It had been divided into two groups. The 10 tribes in the north retained the name Israel. So in the divided kingdom, you speak of Israel, we're talking about the 10 tribes. The two tribes in the south, Judah and Benjamin, were known simply as Judah. So the divided kingdom was Israel and Judah. Well, in the 20 or 21st year of that divided kingdom, a man named Asa becomes king in Judah. And as we look in chapter 14, beginning there in verse 2, it says that Asa did good and right in the sight of the Lord his God. I'm not sure how he did that because he did not have much of a, an example in that manner. The two kings before him had, had not done so well, and his great-grandfather uh, Solomon had not done so well. Now, the ten tribes in the north quickly went into idolatry after the kingdom split. Judah wobbled back and forth between obedience to God and, and uh, sliding into idolatry. And so we come to the reign of Asa, and he says that he did good. Not how he did it, but what he did. And it was right in the sight of the Lord his God. What was it that was good about his reign? Well, one of the things there in verse 3, 
it tells us that he removed the foreign altars and the high places, which were likely places of idol worship that had not uh, come about since the kingdom divided, but had existed during the reign of Solomon. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses told the people before they went into the promised land, don't intermarry with the people. Do not. Because those individuals are going to draw your hearts away from God and into idolatry. And some hundreds of years later, Solomon proved it. We know that he had 700 wives. And the scripture tells us that those wives turned his heart away from God. And he actually engaged in idol worship because of the influence of those wives. Well, Asa came, comes along and he removes those foreign altars. He takes away the high places. And it says also that he tore down there in verse 3, he, he tore down, or actually in verse 2 and 3, he tore down the sacred pillars or stones. Prior to the temple being built, there would be times that Israel would mark the activity of God with a sacred pillar or a sacred stone. Just recently, Pastor Drew preached about Ebenezer, the stone of help. It was a reminder of how God had intervened. Jacob had set up a stone pillar at Bethel as a tribute, as a reminder of what God has done. It is regrettable, though, when the reminder of worship becomes an object of worship. Instead of focusing on the God who gave the victory through that, we focus on the victory or the uh, visible expression of that victory itself. It can happen in 21st century America where we begin to idolize the reputation or our buildings or our budgets or our baptisms and we begin to focus on the result of God's blessing than on the blesser himself. But Asa removed the sacred markers. He cut down the ashram, which are another source of idolatry, female or wooden symbols of a female deity. And it is not enough, or he, he did not see it as enough, simply to take away the bad. But he then commands Judah to seek the Lord, to obey the commandments, observe the law and the commandments. It's what I would call the, pen, the principle of positive replacement. Take away the bad, insert something that is better for you. It goes on to tell us in chapter uh, 14 that he also removed the high places and incense altars from all of Judea, uh, Judea or all of Judah. So not just in Jerusalem but spreading out and around in the area uh, that was under his control. These may have been additional forms of idolatry, but it's also possible that there were times that Jews utilized those high places and incense places to offer up offerings unto the Lord God. Why would they do that? Perhaps because they're too lazy to get up and go into Jerusalem to worship. Think I'll just stay at home and worship today. Let's go out in the backyard, fire up the grill, offer up some burnt offerings unto the Lord. <laughs> they were doing perhaps as a matter of convenience rather than obedience. The scripture, so he did all of these things in a spiritual sense as a king, but he also built up the military. 
It tells us in chapter 14 that he had a combined armed forces between Benjamin and Judah of 580,000 men. And it said that all of them were valiant warriors. These weren't guys that were just drafted and, and uh, just grinding out their teeth, serving out their time. These were men who were ready to go. They were ready to engage. They were ready to serve. They were ready to defend. And he was the head of that group of soldiers. So all is going well through the first 10 years of his reign. Things are prosperous. How is it that Asa was able to accomplish all of that? Verse 6 tells us, because he had sought the Lord. God had given him rest. And in verse 7 said, so they built and they prospered. It was a good time to live in Judah. Things were going well until a million man army came up from Ethiopia. Can you imagine? One million soldiers coming up against your 580,000. They're outnumbering you nearly two to one. Plus they have 300 chariots. They had a military, a, a tactical, a strategic advantage with the chariot forces that they had. And you're in a, a mess. What are you going to do? What can you do? What, uh, what should you do? Should you measure it out? Say they got twice as many as we do. Better sue for peace. Let's, let's smoke the peace pipe. Let's see how we can get along. That's not what Asa does. Look with me in verse 11 of chapter 14. Then Asa called to the Lord his God and said, Lord, there is no one beside thee to help in the battle between the powerful, that'd been the million man army, and those who have no strength. That's us. So help us, O Lord our God, for we trust in thee and in thy name have come against this multitude. O Lord, thou art our God, do let not man prevail against thee. Note what Asa did. He prayed a God-centered prayer. He brought God front and center into the crisis. He made the issue about God and not Judah. In Deuteronomy chapter 3, Moses told the Israelites before they went into the promised land about nations they were going to have to fight after they went into the promised land. And Moses said, do not fear them, for the Lord your God is the one fighting for you. Do you suppose that that's still true today? That in the midst of our issues and problems and difficulties and challenges we face personally or in our family or in our state or in our nation or even our church, do we think that God is still able to intervene? Are we looking to an election as a solution? Or the God who reigns above. Benjamin Franklin is quoted as having said that the longer he lived, the more convinced he was that there was a God who reigned in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow could not fall to the ground without his notice, is it possible or probable that an empire could rise without his aid? This idea that there is a God who reigns above, who is involved in more than just our worship life and wants to be involved in more than that. Well, verse 12 tells us that the Lord routed the Ethiopians. And they ran. They ran for their lives. They, out of fear, out of uh, discouragement, they lost heart. And God shattered them 
before the Lord and before his army. I ask you, did Asa do good? I.e., was it good that he prayed to the Lord about the national and military problem? I think so. In Act 1, if you look at the the ministry or the reign of King Asa, you could call it a three-act play. In Act 1, he sought the Lord, and God gave a, a mighty military victory as he called upon the Lord. As Act 2, or chapter 15, opens, we find that Asa is approached by a prophet. Now the Spirit of God came on Azariah, the son of Oded. And he came out to meet Asa and said to him, Listen to me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you when you are with him. And if you seek him, he will let you find him. He tells him some other words about people who didn't do that, but ends that time in verse 7, it says, But you, meaning Asa, be strong and do not lose courage, for there is reward in your work. There's reward for your work. Asa heard those words. He's admonished. He's exhorted. And hearing those words, how is he going to respond there beginning in verse 8? He took courage. He removed more idols. He restored the altar of the Lord. He he did a renovation, a remodel. He got it back in shape for use in sacrifice. Then he gathers all of Judah and Benjamin and men who had defected from Israel, from Ephraim and Simeon and Manasseh. They come to Jerusalem and he leads them in sacrifice and worship to the Lord and in a covenant to seek the Lord with all their heart and soul and went on to, in his zealousness to say, and anyone that doesn't do it, we're going to kill you. You're going to be right, you're going to get right, or you're going to be gone. They followed that covenant time with a spectacular period of worship. In verse, uh, verse 14, it says, with a loud voice, they worship, with shouting, with trumpets. Larry, I don't think they had to use a muffler on their trumpet because he's in church. I mean, they let it go. They ripped the sound uh, abroad because of their joy in worshiping the Lord. He removed, he went further and he removed his own mother from her title as queen mother because she had made an idol to worship. He not only removes mom out of a, a position of influence, he cuts the idol apart, he crushes it, and he burned it. And the scripture tells us in verse 17, at the end of that verse, that Asa's heart was blameless all his days. Judah had purposed and covenanted to seek God with all their heart and had sought him earnestly, and God let them find him. And what is the result of their seeking after the Lord in that way? It says there was no more war until the 35th year of Asa's reign. Now, my meager math skills would calculate that's something like 20 years of prosperity and peace without concern of safety and welfare. Again, it was a good time to be living in Judah. My question to you is Act 2 of the three-act play closes, did Asa do good? Did he do good things? Well, absolutely. May God multiply that kind of spirit in our national leaders 
and the obedient response in our churches today. May God raise up people who withhold nothing in the purity of their worship and in their zeal for the Lord. People who are more God-conscious than self-conscious. People who are more concerned about God's glory than their self-glory. Act 2 closes on Asa's reign, and we come to the third and final act in chapter 16. In chapter 16, in the 36th year of his reign, Basha, king of Israel, came up against Judah and fortified Ramah. He set up a blockade to keep anyone from coming in to see Asa or going out from Asa. He cut him off. He boxed him in. Asa couldn't know what was going on out yonder. He had no way of getting word back and forth. It was hard to know what's happening. Communication is difficult. Now, if you're King Asa and you've served the Lord for 35 years, you know what to do. You know how God delivered from the million-man army. You know how God prospered you for years and years and years as you sought him with all your heart. Surely God can take care of whatever army the, the people of Israel can muster against you. Well, what does Asa do? Let's look down in verse 2 of chapter 16. Then Asa brought out silver and gold from the treasuries of the house of the Lord and the king's house and sent them to Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, who lived in Damascus. And the narrative goes on that in sending that gift, Asa said, let there be a treaty between you and me, as there was between my father and your father. Behold, I've sent you silver and gold. Go, break your treaty with Basha, king of Israel, so that he will withdraw from me. So he offers a bribe, a payment to the king of Syria, to thwart and go after Israel so Israel will back off from oppressing Judah. That's pretty savvy, isn't it? He had learned some things about the political circles and how to navigate an international situation. He was using his expertise to secure the security or the safety of Judah while thwarting Israel's intents. In fact, after Syria went after Israel, the people of Judah came up and they removed all the building stuff that had been uh, put up with the blockade. They took it and fortified their own cities. They didn't let it go to waste. A great opportunity to show political courage. So I ask you, did Asa do good? Did he prosper his nation in some way? Well, let's look down in verse 7 and read of chapter 16. At that time, Hanani the seer. Now, a seer was one who saw things from a spiritual perspective, perhaps equivalent to a prophet. Hanani the seer came to Asa king of Judah and said, because you have relied on the king of Israel and have not relied on the Lord your God, therefore the army of the king of Syria has escaped out of your hand. We're not, and then he reminds him of the past victories. We're not the Ethiopians in the Lubum, an immense army with very many chariots and horsemen. Yet because you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. 
You have acted foolishly in this. Indeed, from now on, you will surely have wars. Asa did not do good. He didn't do well either. He messed up. He used man's way to solve the problem. In fact, he didn't even bother to ask God what God thought about it when the crisis arose. He's been around the block. He's been on the throne for 35 years. He knows how to run a country. And so on his own, independent of God, he goes and solves the problem. Now to the external eye, we say, well, that was pretty smart. But God was not pleased. And so God confronts him with a prophet to call him out on his lack of reliance upon the Lord. We know how King David responded when Nathan the prophet called him out about his sin with Bathsheba. David repented. So how is Asa going to respond? In verse 10, then Asa was angry with the seer or the prophet and put him in prison. He reacted. He got mad. No prophet's going to talk to me that way. And he removes him. He turns his heart rather than receiving the admonition. He went on to oppress some of his own people at the same time. So we come to verse 11, and the third act appears to be closing in verse 11. After that incident, and now the acts of Asa from first to last, behold, they were written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. He said, well, he messed up a little at the end, but still, he said, he's a good king. But the chapter continues on. In the 39th year of his reign, Asa became diseased in his feet. His disease was severe. I don't think it was athlete's foot. The disease was severe. And even in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but sought physicians instead. Now, I'm not against going to doctors. I go to doctors. But my hope and trust is not in the doctor. It's in the God who gives the doctor wisdom to, to uh, prescribe a proper treatment. But Asa didn't do that. He turned his heart away from God and he didn't seek the Lord. He slept with his fathers, having died in the 41st year of his reign. Now, when did this unraveling begin? It began in year 36. And from year 36 to 41, he became indifferent to God. He didn't pursue God. He wasn't interested in God. He didn't care about God. You said, well, I thought you said that Asa was a good king. He was, until he wasn't. <laughs> Just like lots of members of churches, they're good people, until they're not. Who serve, until they don't. Who rely upon the Lord, until they begin to rely on their bank account or their primary care physician or the retainer, the lawyer they've got on retainer. They figured out how to manage life without having to rely on God, and so they do. And that's what Asa did. And I'm thinking, I'm glad I'm not like Asa. I'm glad I don't rely on my own wisdom on occasion. I'm glad I don't try to figure it out a way uh, out of this financial crisis apart from God. I'm glad that we're in church and we got a problem. We can let the elders take care of it. Or we can call a committee and let them figure it out. 
And in the, doing those actions, we turn our heart away from God as our source and cease to rely totally on Him. Let me ask you this morning, are, are you relying on God today? I'm not talking about what you did 20 years ago. I'm talking about today. Does my service to the Lord reflect a reliance upon the Lord? Or if I'm asked to serve, do I get in the game or I stay on the porch? The porch swing's really nice. That rocker feels really good. Feels well. Am I content on the memories of my past service instead of operating in a, a current engagement? What kind of legacy am I leaving for those who are going to follow behind me? Is that legacy one of faithfulness in the presence or simply memories of the past? When I, someone loves me enough to point out a rip in my coat or how I've stepped out of line or something that wasn't as honoring to the Lord as it should have been, do I humble my heart and graciously receive that? Or do I get mad and tell them, that's not your business. Don't be talking to me about spiritual things. What is my heart attitude today? Do I have a mindset that I've done my time? Now I've got the wounds, the scars to show it. I've done my time. Let others take up the, the fight. That treats Christian service like a contract to be fulfilled rather than a response of gratitude to the eternal God who continues to provide and protect and give peace from my own existence. I would say to you that justice for Asa, the story of your life and mine, is not going to be written, it's not complete until the last chapter has been written. And may God spare us from the temptation to, to sit on the porch and cease to serve when we could serve. Do you suppose that Travis has any needs for servants to help in the welcome center? To help in preschool and children's areas? To get help with the Mercy Clinic, to get off the porch and back into the game. I appeal to you by our common Savior to seek the Lord and ask Him to help you see what you're relying upon.